0: Please read the agreement details below before clicking, I accept to continue. Now, since we're all family here and confession is good for the soul, answer me honestly. Do do you always carefully read the fine print before clicking to continue? I imagine the answer is no. Okay. If you said yes, you can just leave. You, you, no, we, 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 don't pay, we don't pay attention to the details when we don't think the details matter very much. When you're downloading a free app from the App Store and you're installing it, you, you, just, you just skip by those details in the fine print because you don't think it matters much. However, when you're signing your name, when you're pledging yourself, when you're committing your all, to something important, the details really matter. The details matter. I remember a friend of mine when he bought his first home, this was 20 years ago when we lived in Raleigh, after he came home from the closing of their of their house, I remember he said, I said, How'd it go? And he was like shaking his hand because he had to sign so many things. And he said, He said, I felt like I was signing. My life away. Now, in our studies of Luke chapter nine, we've been in this chapter for 14 years we are actually to the end of it this morning, where we've gotten to the end of this wonderful chapter, and we've noticed time and time and time again, Jesus doesn't put things in the fine print. He doesn't hide the cost of discipleship. He doesn't bury things down in those clauses that you don't read. He puts everything out for those who would follow him straightforward, front and center. This is what it will cost you. He doesn't let us skip over anything. He doesn't hide things in the fine print. But friend, if you follow him, it will cost you your life. You are signing your life away when you follow Jesus. Your life is given over to him as the Lord and as our master. When he calls us to follow him, he bids us come and die. He summons us to take up our cross daily and follow him. No days off, no vacation, Kids, no spring break, no leave of absence. Those of you in the military, every step of your walk with Christ belongs utterly, completely and permanently for him. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what we've seen again and again in Luke chapter nine. And so in this last paragraph in Luke chapter 9 if you're if you're using a Pew Bible you can find this on page 868 Beginning there in verse 57 we encounter three would be disciples three would be disciples three people who would be disciples but they've got concerns they've got questions they have reservations about fully committing to Jesus. You'll notice as we read this passage, the theme again is discipleship. I know this because the word follow occurs three times. That's been the theme of the whole chapter. When I say discipleship, I'm talking about your individual following of King Jesus. So my question that I want to answer from the passage, I think it's the question that Luke wants us to answer, is this. What can true disciples of Jesus learn about discipleship from three would-be disciples? What can true disciples of Jesus learn about discipleship from these three would be disciples of Jesus. And my prayer as we read this passage and as we study it together is that each one of us would follow the Lord Jesus Christ fully and faithfully forever. This is what Holy Scripture says. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, let me just draw your attention to the context. Remember the context, the text. If you take the text out of a context, all you're left with is a con. So verse 57, notice as they were going along the road, Do you see that as they were going along the road, Luke is setting the context for us. But he's doing more than that. That phrase along the road, your Bible may say along the way is theologically significant in the Gospel of Luke. This phrase, along the way, along the road, it's going to show up again and again over the next 10 chapters. Verse 51, Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And so beginning in this passage, all the way to chapter 19, Jesus is going from the north in Galilee and making his way south to Judea. They pass through Samaria. We saw that a few weeks ago. They're on their way to Jerusalem in the south. And we know what's going to happen to Jesus when he gets there. He's going to be betrayed, suffer at the hands of wicked men. He's going to be crucified on the third day. He's going to rise again from the dead. And so this caravan of Christ followers are with Jesus along the way. That phrase, the way. And on the way to the cross... Jesus is going to teach his disciples the way of the cross. What does it mean to follow him as a disciple? That's what Jesus is burdened to teach on. And what's amazing, isn't it amazing? Remember at the beginning of Luke's gospel, John the Baptist, the prophet of the Lord came. And what was his prophetic ministry from Isaiah 40? He was called to prepare the what? The way for the Lord. And now the very Lord who has come incarnate in Christ is on the way, teaching his disciples what it means to follow him on the way of the Lord. And isn't it amazing when you get to Luke's second volume, book of Acts, what were the early Christians called? They were called followers of the what? The way. So this is the way this is. That's from a Star Wars movie. I think this is, this, Paul, you have to tell me everything. Something about the way, I don't know. I had a, a, a clever uh, cultural reference there and I missed it. So there you go. Uh, talk to Paul if you want to know about uh, whatever. All right, Star, Star Wars and anything we're doing doing to international relations. Okay, followers of the way. That's that's where we are. That That's the point. That's the idea. And Luke is cluing you into that, even in that opening phrase. Now, first would-be disciple that we meet. The first Would-be disciple, number one, is the person I'm calling the deceived disciple. The deceived disciple. Verses 57 to 58. The deceived disciple. Look again at verse 57. As they were going along the way or the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Someone unnamed approaches Jesus. You can tell that the person is not as important as the response that Jesus is going to give. So we're told this person comes up and with enthusiasm, with zeal, with excitement, says to Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. This is a bold promise, right? No matter where you go, Jesus, I'm there. I'll follow you anywhere. Now, you might think that Jesus would respond with a high five or with, yes, that's great, great, great response. You might expect a word of encouragement or a a word of affirmation from the Savior. But Jesus doesn't speak idle words. He knows this man's heart. And notice what he says to this man. Verse 58, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, that is Jesus himself, has nowhere, no place to lay his head. Jesus does not prescribe to the seeker-friendly movement model. He speaks A hard word to this man. He speaks the truth in love. We can safely assume this man needed to hear the Savior's hard reply. He needed to sober this man. Perhaps this man was deceived as to the nature of discipleship. Perhaps he was deceived as to what it was going to cost him in his following of Christ. The reason I think he was probably deceived is because of Jesus' reply. Perhaps, listen, this man had zeal just like James and John that we saw last week, but not according to what? Knowledge. So based on Jesus' response, this man appears, at least to me, to assume that following Jesus will be easy. And so Jesus responds knowing his heart telling him it won't be easy. Let me summarize. Let me summarize. Again, Jesus doesn't put the hard stuff in fine print. Kids, listen up. This is what Jesus is saying to this man. Jesus says, you wanna follow me? Okay, this is what you're signing up for. The fox raids the vineyards, and then afterwards, the fox wants to rest, and he scurries back to his den, and he sleeps in his den, and he's refreshed and then he can go out again and pillage the vineyards again look at the birds that they fly everywhere they fly against the currents of the wind and they get tired and what do they do the birds they fly back to their tree, their nest in the trees and they take a nap and then they get up and go out and fly again but i'm the son of man i'm the promised son of man The one who deserves all glory and honor and praise from all nations, according to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And I don't have a nest. And I don't have a den. I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't have a home. I don't even have a bed. If you want to follow me. Friend, expect the same treatment. Don't count on plush accommodations because you won't have any. Are you sure you're willing to follow me wherever I go? That's what Jesus is saying. Bishop Ryle commenting on this verse said this, Christ's service is not all pleasure and smooth sailing. Christ's service is, It's not all pleasure and smooth sailing. If you're not willing to endure hardship, withdraw your application from following Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Now listen, we ought to all be discipling others, helping others follow Jesus. That's what discipling means. If you're a disciple of Jesus, your discipleship is your following of Jesus. And he said, make disciples. And so part of what your discipleship means is you're helping others follow Jesus. That's what discipling is. Now, as you're discipling other people, especially those who are younger in the faith, are you helping them to have a theology of suffering? If you tell young Christians, it's going to be easy. That's a lie. What you tell them is it will be hard and it is worth it. It's eternally worth it. You will be opposed. You will be rejected at times. You will have to count the cost, but it's worth it. There are movements of people in this world called prosperity gospel preachers That they don't preach the gospel and they don't lead to true prosperity. But they say constantly the Christian is going to live an easy life. You are promised by God, they say, health, wealth and happiness. And guess what? People eat it up. That's what the carnal person wants to hear, right? Who wants to hear this? I mean, think about this. The guy comes up and says, I want to follow you over. And Jesus says, I don't have a place to sleep. He's telling him the truth. But the way of Christ is not the easy way. And the reason I can say that is Jesus said it. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And you remember the very next thing Jesus said. Beware of false prophets. Who dress up like sheep, but who inside are what ravenous wolves. Do you know why I said that? False prophets stand at the wide gate. They're the ones standing at the wide gate saying the way is easy. Come this way. They don't talk about self-denial. They don't talk about the cost of discipleship. They don't talk about dying and taking up your cross daily, because that sounds not too appealing. But Jesus says the ones on the rock are those when they hear the word, they initially receive it with joy, right? But they have no root and they believe for a while. And then in a time of testing, what happens? Fall away. So what does this say to us? What does this say to us? It, it says to us, this deceived, zealous, and naive disciple, it's a reminder that he's, he's been saying this the whole chapter. We need to count the cost. We need to count the cost. It's hard to follow Christ, but it is worth it. It's worth it. Listen, friend, all of this may sound harsh to your ears. Listen to me. This is why I was praying to be amazed by grace earlier. This is what hit me this week. We will never complain that the way is narrow if we are amazed that the way is open. You will never complain that the way is hard if you are you're amazed that there's a way open at all for anyone. Friend, if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to be amazed that Christ has opened a way to God for you. I want you to be amazed that he doesn't just summon you to follow a certain way. Jesus himself is the way. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus Christ himself is, The eternal son of God came into the world to bear the penalty for sinners who've rebelled against their maker, who've done whatever we wanted to do instead of living for the glory of the God who made us and who gives us everything every day. Jesus was obedient in our place, died the death we deserve, took the penalty for our sins, rose for our justification And he offers anyone who would turn and trust in him forgiveness, righteousness and eternal life. He has made a way to God. And so the question for you this morning, what's keeping you from following him in the way? What's keeping him or keeping you from following and trusting in him? This first would be disciple zealously professes his allegiance to Jesus, but he's deceived. These next two would be disciples, they have commitment issues. Look at number two. Number two. I want us to consider number two the divided disciple. The divided disciple. Verses 59 and 60. The divided disciple. This person that Jesus meets next wants to follow Christ but his loyalties are divided so to speak so following Jesus is on the list but it's not the top of the list now some of you in this room maybe in your relationships or your job or whatever you've been told you have commitment issues right you just you, maybe you maybe you don't ever commit to anything or You overcommit. You say you're going to do all this stuff, but you don't follow through. Well, look at verse 59. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This is the same command that Jesus gave. Remember in the gospel of Luke earlier, when Jesus comes up to Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, and he's, he's there at his tax table, and Jesus says, follow me. And what does Levi do? What does Matthew do? Leaves everything and follows Jesus, right? It, this is a divine command from the Lord God Almighty. So anytime God says something, you don't say, sure, but... Uh, that's what happens here. He, notice, this is amazing. He calls Jesus Lord. He calls him Master, he calls him ruler, but his true allegiance is elsewhere, right? But you have to hand it to the guy. He's got a pretty good excuse, right? I mean, can we not, can we not all agree? I've got to go bury my father. That's a really good excuse. Verse 59, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. He, he, he's not saying I need to go rob a bank. Uh, I need to go cheat on my taxes, I'm going to go down to the the brothel or something. He doesn't say that. He says, Lord, I'm going to follow, but let let me go bury my dad. Now, it seems like he's trying to honor the fifth commandment. Remember, kids, commandment number five, you shall what? Honor your father and your mother. And in this culture, in the first century among Jews, that Honoring your father and your mother meant, especially for the eldest son, it meant burying your parents. To neglect the burial of your dad, especially, or your mom would be to violate the fifth commandment. It'd be a failure to honor your parents. Now, there may be others. I could only find two examples in the Old Testament of uh, God's word saying that there were exceptions to this. One is Leviticus 21, the high priest. The high priest couldn't come near a dead body. So that was, that's, one, that's one exception. Leviticus 21.10. The only other exception I could find is if you had taken a Nazarite vow, which was a temporary thing. But again, Nazarite vow, number six, you couldn't come near a dead body. Those are the only two exceptions. We're not told that this dude is either one of those guys. But here's the point. Will this family excuse persuade Jesus? Verse 60, look at it with me. So don't look at me, look at your Bibles. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wow. Like literally you couldn't come up with a better excuse and Jesus is having none of it. He says to the guy, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, scholars debate what Jesus means by this. Let me give you the commonly accepted interpretation. And then I'll tell you the correct interpretation. <laughs> Many argue in the first century that the Jews, they practice this two-fold process to bury someone. You would bury, you would always bury someone the day they died. We see this in the Gospels, right? Lazarus is buried the day he died. Jesus is buried the day he died. They would bury someone in a cave or in a tomb, and then they would wait one year. After a year, enough decomposition had happened, and then a year later, you would go back to the tomb, gather up the bones, put them in like an ossuary bone box, and have the formal kind of ceremony there, two parts of the Of the burial. And so scholars argue that this guy is in that middle period of waiting. They've already done the first thing and he's waiting that year to to finish off the funeral. That's why he's trying to delay following Jesus, so so they say. And so the idea would be: quote, let the dead, that is the ancestors, bury or receive their own dead, that is the man who had recently died. Now, um, I think this is a clever interpretation. And I think it's wrong. I think it's clever, but it's also too clever. Um, I'm not sure you would read that that way. Secondly, I think it fails to give heed to the context. I think Jesus contrasts leaving the dead to bury the dead with what? Go and preach the gospel, right? There, there's, a, there's a spiritual contrast that Jesus is making here. So I take verse 60 Verse 60, I take that as helpful to understand what he's going. So this is what I take Jesus to mean. Here's what, I, here's what I'm, I think he means. Let those who are spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the life-giving gospel of the kingdom everywhere. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is raising the allegiance of what a disciple requires, even above the God-honoring allegiance that we give to family. And he's saying the most important thing as a disciple of Jesus is spreading the good news of Jesus and his kingdom everywhere. That's not just for pastors. That's for every disciple. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus describes those who are lost and in rebellion as being dead. Remember, remember the parable of the prodigal son, when the the son returns to the father, what they celebrate, they kill the fattened calf. And what does the father say? Well, they say, why are you having this party? He says, for what? This my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost And now he's found. And in John six, Jesus is going to say, whoever hears my words and believes them has passed from death to life. Jesus understands that those who are who are outside of him are dead spiritually. And so Jesus is saying to this man, my claim upon you, my demand for your allegiance transcends even the highest and most respected obligations That you have even to your own family. That's staggering, isn't it? Jesus is going to say this all through the gospel of Luke. Now, he assumes that there are going to be people, other people that can take care of the final arrangements of the funeral. But Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And he summons this man to be a laborer in the harvest fields. Because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Now, again, I imagine when you hear these words, you think this is unloving. This is unkind. But Jesus is saying, and he says in other passages in Luke, that following him will often create division between you and And especially those closest to you that aren't followers of Jesus. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, because of your faith in Jesus, it's created hostility or perhaps uh, difficult relationships in your family? Jesus says this will happen. And I want you to remember Christ's promise and remember his example, okay? Really quickly, Jesus promises you this. As you consider this, what it's gonna cost, Jesus says this, this is over in Luke 18. I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Eternal life. Luke 18, 29. And remember just a little bit earlier in this book, when Jesus is inside the house ministering, there's a crowd surrounding the house and the crowds come up and they say, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside, but they can't get in here because of the crowd. What does Jesus say to them? He says, everybody get out of the way. That's my family. No, no. Jesus says, my mother and my brother are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So remember his promise. Remember his example. Listen, it is impossible to faithfully follow Christ when you have constantly a divided heart. Jesus wants you All in, not halfway. He wants all of you. He will not share his throne with anyone. Not even your mother-in-law. Not even your husband. Not even your children. He will not share his throne with anyone. Number three, last one, the the delaying disciple. Disciple. We've seen the deceived disciple, the, the would-be disciple. We've seen the, the divided would-be disciple. And then number three, the delaying disciple. Look at verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, I can imagine that one thing that we all have in common is that we don't like being put on hold. How many of you love being put on hold, right? Uh, when you call that 1-800 number and you go through the confusing phone system and, and then you, you, you're listening to, you know, you've selected all the options and you're listening to Kenny Loggins' music. You know, I, I love Kenny Loggins' music, but like you're listening to this music and you're just like, finally, may I, may I help you? You get to a human being on the other line. And then immediately they put you on hold. It's awful, right? Well, none of us like putting a, 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 being put on hold. Imagine standing before the Lord of glory and putting him on hold. That's what this disciple, this would-be disciple does. He puts his discipleship on hold. I will follow you, but just not right now. Let me go home and say bye to my family first. And what Jesus is getting at here, brothers and sisters, is simply this. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. When we were, when our kids were really little, we would always talk about, you know, obey mommy and daddy, right? All the way, right away, with a happy heart. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. It's all or nothing. Jesus isn't inviting us to a spring break discipleship plan. He's not saying, hey, throughout the year you follow me, but then in the summer, do whatever you want. No, Jesus Is saying to this man, "You need to follow me right now, and you don't need to look back." Look again at verse sixty-two. Jesus said to him, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit or is suitable for the kingdom of God." Now, let's dig into this briefly. This guy, just like the, the third, the second guy, he has a good excuse. And even more so than the first, the second guy, he's got scriptural warrant for this, right? Remember our Old Testament reading? The prophet Elisha, when he's approached by the prophet Elijah and he's given the mantle to be the next prophet of God, he says to Elijah in that passage that we read in 1 Kings 19, he says to to, to the prophet, let me go and say goodbye to my family. First, And then I'll come and follow you. And Elijah says, sure thing. So he goes home. He, he slaughters the cattle. They have a huge feast. Then he returns and follows the prophet. But you see what's happening here. By way of contrast. Jesus is elevating what it means to follow him. He is the one that the prophets long to see. He is the one who's the promised Messiah. He is the one That all the scriptures pointed forward to. And now that God has come in the flesh. Everything is escalated. The kingdom is being inaugurated. The king is here. And what may have been okay in the past. Is not anymore. And so he's calling. Us to follow him. Now. The summons to follow Jesus. Takes urgent Precedence over everything. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus says to this guy, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Those of us who grew up on farms, maybe you understand this a little bit better. If you're plowing a field, right, what you don't want to do this. You don't want to constantly be looking back to see if you're plowing a straight line, because what's going to happen? You're going to do this, right? You're going to do this. You can't plow straight line if you're looking back all the time. It's like kids, you may not understand this, but if you're driving, you don't drive this way, right? You're not going to drive straight by looking back. You want to keep your eyes firmly ahead of you to stay between the lines. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, if you're constantly looking back, you can't look back and follow me. You've got to fix your eyes on me and follow me straight ahead. Now, What are we we supposed to make of this? What what are we supposed to draw from this as we close? There have been a few lessons already, but I just want to take and give you two examples to set before you for your encouragement and for your edification. We've had three would-be disciples. I'm going to give you two followers of Jesus, two genuine disciples to fix your eyes on and emulate. The first is the Apostle Peter. The reason I'm choosing Peter is, interestingly, if you read the Gospels, the first and last words that Jesus ever spoke to Peter were the words, follow me. Remember in John 21, after Jesus is risen from the dead, Peter comes to Jesus and says, hey, is is this John guy? Like, I'm going to get martyred, but what about this John guy? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You follow me. And when Jesus, when Peter was fishing with the other disciples, Jesus comes up to him first words, he says to Peter, follow me so we we can learn about following Christ from Peter. And what's amazing is that we see in Peter so much of ourselves, don't we? If any other disciple he delays, he's often deceived, he's often divided. He falls short. He stumbles. He says things that he shouldn't. He does things that he shouldn't. He's constantly failing. And yet Jesus's grace is sufficient for him. Peter was forgiven and strengthened. And God used Peter for his own glory and for the good of the church. And Peter was restored after he denied Jesus three times. Jesus told him that he loved him. And then Peter preaches at Pentecost and Peter went on to be martyred. He followed Jesus even unto death. And as we think about it, that's an encouragement for us because this passage isn't written for other people. This passage was written down for you. It was written down for me. We we need these examples Christian, listen to me. Your best days as a disciple are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. But Christian, Peter reminds us that your worst days as a disciple are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. There is grace and mercy and forgiveness available to us every day because it flows to us from the beautiful heart of our Savior, the Savior of sinners, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. I love that Peter wrote right before he was martyred, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous For the unrighteous to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.10. 3.18, sorry. The good news of the gospel is that the blessed one, the righteous one, died as the cursed one in our place. Jesus knows all the ways we're going to mess up. He knows all the ways we're gonna fall short. He knows that we're divided. He knows that we delay. He knows that we're deceived and he keeps on loving us. Isn't that beautiful? I love the, the apostle John in John's gospel. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple and we kind of read that and we think that's kind of prideful. Like, oh, he's the beloved disciple. You could also render that phrase. He's the disciple that Jesus kept on loving. If you're in the beloved Christian, Jesus will keep on loving you all the way to the end. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we've been healed. Second example, and we're done. It's a good reminder to us that the good, the good news of the gospel isn't try harder, the good news of the gospel is that it is finished. And because it's finished, we can follow him boldly, courageously, even in the face of persecution and death. So the last example is the example of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp. If you, some of you young parents or wanting to be parents, you're looking for a good name. Polycarp. It's a great name. He was Bishop of Smyrna, one of the seven churches that John writes about in, in Revelation. He was he lived from 70 A.D. to 155 A.D., he was actually discipled by the Apostle John. That's Polycarp, okay? So Jesus disciple John, John disciple Polycarp. Now, there was government uh, persecution of Christians because they refused to worship Caesar as God, as son of God. And so they interrogated Polycarp, who was the bishop. And he was an old man at this time. So he's old. He's been following Jesus for a long time. They try to get Polycarp to deny his faith and swear allegiance to Caesar. And then this is what one historian writes. The proconsul said, swear and I will release thee, curse the Christ. And Polycarp responded, eighty and six years have I served him and he hath done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, Swear by Caesar. And Polycarp answered, If you imagine I would swear by Caesar, you pretend not to know what I am. Hear me plainly I am a Christian. You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and is quenched, and you do not know of the fire of judgment that is to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Reserved from the ungodly. Why do you delay? Bring what you will. And so the proconsul sent word that they would execute him. And as they executed Polycarp, do you know what they said? Polycarp confessed himself to be a Christian. We may not face martyrdom in this country today. But we will all be tempted along the path of discipleship to deny Jesus. To skirt and avoid the cost of following him. If you haven't, just live longer. But Peter wrote these words that I close with. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed But let him glorify God in that name. Are you a Christian? Don't be ashamed of that beautiful name. But glorify God in that name. And go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And put your hand on the plow. And don't ever look back. Let me pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, forgive us for our tepid, often tepid discipleship. Help us to be renewed and forgiven this day to follow you with a united heart. So unite our hearts to fear your name and help us to glorify Christ in everything. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.